Genesis chapter 45, verses 1 through 15. Genesis chapter 45, verses 1 through 15. And our passage this morning falls in the middle of the narrative of Joseph that is included here at the end of this book. And in particular, we have seen earlier that Joseph was Jacob's favorite son. His brothers, because of their jealousy, sold him in slavery in Egypt. Um, There he was unjustly imprisoned, but the Lord brought him out of that to make him um, the right-hand man to Pharaoh and used him Um, to preserve Egypt from a famine, as Joseph was responsible for setting aside grain um, to store that up in preparation for a famine that um, at this point in the text has now come about. Um, And now because of this famine, Joseph's brothers had to go to Egypt to get grain because there was none in the land of Canaan. And they had encountered Joseph. He recognized them. They did not recognize him. Um, And here, after a sequence of of events in which he's interacted with them, Joseph now reveals his identity to his brothers. This is Genesis chapter 45, verses 1 through 15. Listen to the word of the Lord. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, Make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it, and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. So Joseph said to his brothers, Come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me. Do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen, and you shall be near me, you and your children, and your children's children, and your flocks, your herds, and all that you have. There I will provide for you, for there are yet five years of famine to come, so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. And now your eyes see, and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see, that it is my mouth that speaks to you. 
You must tell my father of all my honor in Egypt and of all that you have seen. Hurry and bring my father down here. Then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. And Benjamin wept upon his neck. And he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. After that, his brothers talked with him. Let's pray once again briefly. Father, we thank you that you have given us your word. And Lord, we pray now that you would be applying it to each of our hearts, to the work of your Holy Spirit in us. Give us ears to hear, eyes to see, hearts to understand. Show us Christ, Lord, through your word. And by it, grow us up in him and make us more like him. We ask these things in his name. Amen. Our sin causes us to distance ourselves from God. We see this in the Garden of Eden. After Adam and Eve sinned by eating of the forbidden fruit, when God came and walked in the garden, they hid themselves. And we see this now in our own lives. When we sin, our natural tendency is to hide ourselves. We feel ashamed. Um, We feel like we cannot come to God. A secondary way, it also causes us to hide ourselves from each other. We don't want to be uh, open and, and share about these matters. We want to instead distance ourselves from others because of our sin, the shame that it brings, the guilt that we feel as a result of it. And we see this in Joseph's brothers. They had conspired to kill him. And though they had spared his life, They sold him into slavery. They lied to their father, making it look like he had been killed by an animal. But despite their successful hiding of their sinful actions, they still struggled with guilt. And we see this a couple of times in the text in previous portions. In chapter 42, verses 21 to 22, we read, Then they, that is his brothers, said to one another, In truth we are guilty concerning our brother, in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, Did I not not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. And now, struggling with this guilt, they come face to face with this brother they had sold into slavery. And not only are they face to face with him, but he is ruler, he says, over all the land of Egypt, second only to Pharaoh. And certainly in this role, he has the power to enact justice, to punish his brothers for their crime. Verse 3 tells us, verse 3 of chapter 45 tells us that when Joseph revealed his identity to his brothers, the text says they could not answer him because they were dismayed at his presence. 
And that word dismayed can rightly be translated even as terrified. They were terrified at his presence. And this terror is a natural and reasonable response at being faced with the reality of their sin, being faced with the one against whom they had sinned, being faced with even the potential to receive the deserved punishment for their sin. And now if you have not placed your faith in Christ, you have sinned against a holy God. The Bible says that all have sinned. And the Bible says that God, being holy and just, punishes sin with death. If you are in Christ, perhaps you still struggle with guilt and regret and shame because of your sin. You may know in your mind that God has forgiven you because of Christ, because of His blood shed for you. But nevertheless, perhaps you still carry the weight of the guilt of that sin. Perhaps you still feel the need to hide yourself from God and others. Joseph here reflects Christ. He foreshadows Christ for us. And in his response to his brothers, I think he shows us something of Christ's response to us. Joseph responds mercifully and graciously to his brothers in their fear and in their guilt. He gently calls them to come near. And this response to his brothers points us forward to Christ, who is our elder brother, and his response to his sinful people. Christ calls you to come near. Christ calls you to come near to him this morning. Brothers and sisters, come near to Christ. We're going to see three reasons that we can come near to Christ in our text. Come near to Christ because God is sovereign even in your sin. Come near to Christ because He saves you. And come near to Christ because He loves you. First, come near to Christ because God is sovereign even in your sin. God is in complete control of every aspect of our lives. Joseph clearly affirms this truth in his own life in our text. Beginning at the end of verse 4, he states, And he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you. Similarly, he says in verse 7, And God sent me before you. And finally in verse 8, again he says, So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Joseph's brothers are afraid. And Joseph comforts his brothers with this statement that though they sold him into slavery, it was ultimately God who sent him to Egypt. We have to ask the question then, why were these words comforting? 
Why were these words comforting? They were terrified. Joseph was responding to their terror by telling them, it was not you who sent me here, but God. And first, we have to deal with some some wrong ways of looking at this. First of all, Joseph is not saying that his brothers were not responsible. In verse 4, Joseph says, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. In verse 5, he again says, you sold me here. In chapter 50 of Genesis, verse 12, Joseph further elaborates on this, saying, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Joseph is in no way saying that his brothers are not responsible for what they did. They sold him into slavery. They are guilty of that. So we must affirm that Joseph's brothers are indeed responsible for their sin. Secondly, another wrong way of looking at this that we must reject um, is that we must not say that God is responsible. Joseph says that God sent him, but this does not mean that God is responsible for the sin of his brothers. James 1.13 says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. God is not responsible. And 1 John 1.5 says, God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. So scripture clearly affirms that God is not the author of evil. So we're not saying that Joseph's brothers are not responsible for their sin. They are. Nor is this text saying that God himself is the author of sin. So where then is the comfort in this text? A third wrong way of understanding this that we must reject is to put the focus too much on on Joseph and say, well, Joseph is just saying that he forgave them. And so they can be comforted because Joseph is now willing to be in relationship with them and be reconciled to them. But we have to reject that as well because Joseph is not talking about himself here. He's talking about God. He places the focus squarely on God and what he has done. He doesn't say, I see what God was doing. He says, don't be distressed or angry with yourself because you sold me, for God sent me before you to preserve life. So the comfort here is found in God, in who he is, and in what he is doing for his people. Because God is good to his people. Who are Joseph's brothers? They are the sons of Israel to whom God had made covenant promises. So God is good to his people. God is good to Joseph's brothers, even in their sin. God has made a covenant with Abraham. He's renewed that covenant with Isaac and with Jacob. He has promised this family that they would have many descendants, that he would make them a great nation, that kings would come from them, that he would give them land, that he would bless them, that all peoples of the earth would be blessed through them, that he would be with them. God has purposed in his sovereignty to make his covenant with this group of people that he would be good to them, that he would be their God, that they would be his people. So God, this God, this covenant-making and keeping, this sovereign God is the one who is saying, I... I am working in this. What then is the result of this? As we look at the text and we see that God sent Joseph despite his brother's sin against him, that God was sovereign in this situation. 
Joseph, Joseph gives us that. He says, do not be distressed or angry with yourselves. So God, even in the sin of Joseph's brothers, is working for his own good purposes, for their own good. We see this idea really throughout Scripture. We see this throughout Scripture even as we consider Christ himself. Acts 2.23 says this, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. We see similar ideas here that Peter says, you crucified and killed him. There's a clear sense that they they are guilty of what they have done. Yet, Peter also makes it clear that this was planned by God. So God's sovereignty overrules man's sin. We see this as well in the life of Paul as we consider his words about himself in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 15 to 16. He says, The saying is trustworthy, deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Paul says he is the chief of sinners. We know he persecuted the church before he was converted. But Paul is saying that there is a purpose in what God has done in showing him mercy. That as the foremost of sinners, God's patience is displayed as an example. So even in Paul's sin, God is working to show his patience more fully. And what about for us? What about for us this morning? What about the sin and the guilt that you maybe feel? Scripture affirms that God works even in your sinfulness for your good. Romans 8.28 says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. All things. All things together for our good including even sin and God's sovereignty. He even takes our sin for which we are responsible and overrules it and and uses it even for his good purposes in our lives. And again, the comfort here is not that you haven't sinned, not that you're not responsible, and not that God is even responsible, but rather the comfort is that no matter what sin you have committed, God is still in control, overruling and redeeming these things and using them for your good. The Lord is sovereign over all things, over all things in your life, both past and present. And in every event of your life, He works for your good. You are His people. And He is working all things together for your good. And this is hard. Perhaps there are great and difficult sins that are weighing on you right now. But trust, trust that when God says these words to you, that they are true. Trust the blood of Christ covers every single sin. 
And that just as God redeemed Paul and even displayed his perfect patience in his saving Paul, so God wishes to reveal himself and to do you good, even in the worst things that you have done. And so, brothers and sisters, still we are to grieve over our sins. We are to mourn over our sins. Matthew 5, 4 says, Blessed are those who mourn. But the text does not stop there, does it? It goes on to say, For they shall be comforted. Christ comforts you. Christ comforts you when you turn to him, when you repent of your sins. As you experience his forgiveness, there is mourning over sin, but that is replaced by comfort. And so in 2 Corinthians 7, Paul tells us about godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. And he says that godly sorrow is without regret. It leads to repentance without regret. So if you are struggling with guilt, if you are weighed down by your sin, that is not the end. That is not where you need to stay. But God wishes that you would repent from your sins that you would turn and purpose after new obedience and that you would do so without regret. For Christ comforts you. And here, if you are perhaps struggling with uh, a persistent guilt um, and, and struggle with, with the weight of sin, um, perhaps examine your heart because sometimes we continue to hold, to hold on to these things because of our own selfishness and pride. Christ says that he has forgiven you. And sometimes we want to say something different and put our own sense of things above what the Lord says in his word. And so there's a caution here. It is right to mourn over sin, but do not stay there. Let these words be first and don't think that you can your sense of things comes above what Christ says when he says that you are forgiven you've been separated from your sins as far as the east is from the west and do not doubt those words sometimes we do that because we want to take pride in our own abilities in our own abilities to do the right thing we want to say that we don't need that we don't need that forgiveness. And so I think sometimes that leads us to continue in this state of guilt. But there is forgiveness in Christ. Put that down. trusting Christ's righteousness alone. Turn to him and know this forgiveness. Know his comfort. Thomas Watson writes of how God uses sin for the believer's good in his work, all things for good. He gives us a couple examples that are maybe helpful in spurring your own thinking on this topic. He writes that sin makes the believer weary of this life. He says, A believer carries his sins as a prisoner his shackles. Oh, how does he long for the day of release? As we struggle with sin, it causes us to desire to be free. To desire that day when we will see Christ and be like him. Further, 
Watson says that this indwelling of corruptions makes the saints prize Christ more. That our sin makes us appreciate Christ as a sick person appreciates a doctor. How can you appreciate the cure if you don't know the disease? Further, our sin spurs us, Watson says, to further self-examination. It causes us to be more humble. It motivates us in the fight against sin to put forth further efforts. It motivates us to vigilance against sin and to new obedience. So God uses your sin even for your own good. And know that God's goodness to you cannot be thwarted by anything that you have done. So come near to God. He knows every one of your sins. And and in His sovereignty, He overrules and directs even these things for your good. And ultimately, every one of your sins, past, present, and future, is covered by the precious blood of Christ. And now, as we turn to the next reason that we can come near to God, we ask the question, for what purpose was God sovereignly working in Joseph's life? We know that he was working for the good of his brothers, but to what good purpose was he working in this narrative? And for what purpose does God continue to work in your lives today? Come near to Christ because he saves you. He saves you. And that salvation is the good purpose that he is working in Joseph's brother's lives and he is working in your life today. In his sovereignty, God works to save his people. And here in this text, we see that God works through Joseph's slavery in Egypt to save his people. At the end of verse 5, Joseph explains, For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years. And there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. The purpose for which Joseph was sold into slavery in Egypt, the text says, was to save lives. And not just any lives. He was sent to Egypt to save the lives of God's people. And so first, we see here a need for salvation. Joseph's family needed to be saved. They had already been through two years of famine. And in those two years, Jacob and his sons, we see prior to this in the text, come to the point of being in desperate need of food, enough to go to Egypt to get food already twice. In chapter 42, Jacob says to his sons, go down and buy grain for us there that we may live and not die. They were in a dire situation. So they did that, and they came back with grain. And again in chapter 43 then, Judah says now to Israel, his father, we will arise and go, that is to Egypt, that we will live and not die. Again, they were at the point of being in desperate need of food. And Joseph, in our text this morning, in chapter 45, emphasizes that there are still five more years of famine remaining. How could Jacob and his family survive? They needed to be saved. And so we see in 
Joseph's life God's saving purposes for his people. The Lord used Joseph to save his people, and through Joseph, he provided for their physical needs through the famine. And more than that, in in saving his people, God also preserved this line, this line of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, this line of promise through which he promised to save, leading ultimately to Christ. So, through even Joseph's being sold into slavery in Egypt, we see God working to save his people. And now, for us, for us, how does this apply? Well, first we have to look to Christ. Because we see that in the same way, as Joseph was sold into slavery and God ultimately used that for the salvation of his people, we see that Christ, Christ died in order that God would save his people. Acts 2.23, which we already read, says again, this Jesus delivered up According to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. And to what end? Christ came to save his people from their sins. And so, God is still working to save his people. And God is still working to save you. Through Christ taking on human flesh, through his sinless life, through his death on the cross, his resurrection, his exaltation to the right hand of the Father, Christ saves his people. And this morning, you also need salvation. You also need salvation. And your need is not a physical one primarily, but a spiritual one. For we all have sinned. And there is no one who is righteous, not even one. We were slaves to sin, dead in our sin, Scripture says, even enemies of God, rightly deserving of his wrath. And in his sovereignty, God will work in your life, in your life, if you are in Christ, God will work to accomplish the salvation that he has promised. That salvation has already been won through Christ's death. We realize it more and more. Scripture speaks sometimes in the present tense that God is saving us. And we look forward to the full realization of that salvation when Christ returns. Romans 8, 28 through 30. We've already looked at verse 28, but as we go on, we see again that God's sovereign goodness to us has a saving purpose. The text says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. And it goes on, For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. This text connects God's goodness. All things work together for the good of God's people to salvation. We see in verse 29 that the end of what God is doing is that we would be more like Jesus. In verse 30, we see that the end of what God is doing is that we would be called, justified, and ultimately glorified. So this goodness that God is showing us, in which he is working all things together for our good, even, even simple things, has its end in our salvation, in our being more like Jesus, 
and our ultimate glorification. The Lord works all things together for the good of his people, for their salvation, even, even their sin. And through our sin and through the sins of others, God is, is overruling and directing those things for his own saving purposes. Maybe even God uses your sin as part of how he saved you, shown you more clearly your need for him. And we see this, this theme clearly in Scripture as well. I think Matthew 1 gives us a couple of really good examples of God using man's sin as the means by which he would accomplish his salvation. We see in Matthew 1, in this genealogy of Christ that is laid out there, a number of, of interesting names that are pointed out. Um, first, Tamar, the mother of Judah's sons, Peretz and Zerah, is mentioned. And this, this Tamar um, refers us back to an incident recorded in Genesis 38. Tamar was the widow of Judah's first son, and the custom at this time was for the widow to marry a brother of the deceased husband, uh, to carry on the dead brother's name and to help provide for his widow as well. Uh, but Judah did not provide his son to be Tamar's wife, and Tamar took matters into her own hands and deceived Judah. It's a very convoluted situation with a lot of sin on both sides, but even in that really messy situation, God worked through this to continue the line of Judah, which ultimately brought us Christ. Further, we see that Solomon appears in Christ's genealogy and his mother Bathsheba is mentioned. This reminds us of David's adultery with Bathsheba, of his murder of her husband Uriah. But out of this terrible sin, God brought about the birth of Solomon, from, who, from whose line Christ was born. We see that God works his saving purposes out, even in man's sin. God works his saving purposes out in your life even in your sin. So come near to Christ because he is working for your salvation. Lastly, come near to Christ because he loves you. Come near to Christ because he loves you. Joseph's love for his brothers is on display throughout this text. Look at how he introduces himself to his brothers he says, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? In verse 3. But his brothers could not answer him. They were dismayed, the text says. So he, again, he says, in verse 4, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. I am your brother Joseph. He refers to himself as their brother, reminding them of that relationship that he has to them. He is their brother. And in that relationship between brothers, there is love, isn't there? I think that's what he's getting at in that he is still their brother. That he still cares for them as a brother. And as we look to Christ, know that he is our brother. He is our brother. And we can draw near to him knowing that his attitude toward us is that of a brother. Further, see Joseph's actions. In verse 2, it says he wept aloud. 
In verse 15 it says, he kissed his brothers, he wept upon them. And in Joseph's emotion, see that, see how he felt in, in being reunited with his brothers and revealing his identity to them, see his tenderness toward them in this weeping, in this kissing of them. Further, see Joseph's love for his brothers in his desire to do them good, in his clear desire to do them good. He says in verse 7, God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth, keep alive for you many survivors. He desires to do them good, to preserve them. He goes on to elaborate in his desire to provide for them, that they would be near him, they would live near him, that he would provide for him through these years of famine. See Joseph's love for his brothers. But as we've already seen more than that, see that in Joseph's response to his brothers, Christ is pictured for us. Consider the life of Joseph. See that he was the beloved son of his father. See that he underwent temptation but did not fall. See that he unjustly was put in prison, that he unjustly uh, suffered. But see then that he was raised up from there to the right hand of the king. And from that position he worked to save his people. And this shows us Christ. And it's not that Joseph himself was anything other than a man, but see the way the Lord revealed himself through his life. And in this, as we look at this text in chapter 45 in particular, see Christ's attitude toward you. That he is your older brother. That he desires that you would come near to him. That, his, that this emotion that we see in Joseph, I think shows us something of Christ's deep love for us. And see his desire to do you good and to save you. So this morning, do not be distressed or angry with yourselves. Do not be distressed or angry with yourselves. Are grief and anger keeping you from God? Again, it is right to mourn over our sin, but Christ comforts us in that. So draw near to Christ. Draw near to Christ and know His comfort know that he is doing you good, that he is saving you, that he loves you. How do we come near to God? How do we come near to God? I think the answer there is uh, the one that we often talk about, the, the means of grace that God has given us through which we experience the blessings that are ours in Christ. Come near to God as you listen to his word. Come near to God as you approach the throne of grace through Jesus in prayer. So if you've been struggling in those areas, know that through Christ you are forgiven. Know that through Christ you can draw near to God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for what we see of Christ in this passage. We thank you for Christ, our older brother, who died for us, who arose again, who is even now seated at your right hand, who ever lives to intercede for us, who works to save us. 
and loves us. And Lord, I pray for each one here that each one would know Christ's love for him or for her. That each one would come near knowing that love. Each one would more and more deeply experience union and communion with Christ. That you would strengthen each one in Christ for the work ahead this week. Build up this congregation more and more in Him. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.